This is CliffCentral.com. Good morning out there. It's uh, frankly speaking on Cliff Central, 9 a.m. on Wednesday. Uh, today we're going for an hour. We're calling it the Power Hour. And uh, we are going to be discussing, um, frankly speaking, how, uh, how can white, or frankly speaking, how do young white people participate constructively in the future of SA? My name is Rory. Um, I am flying solo today. My partner in crime, Andrew Levy, is all the way in Kenya. Uh, so we hope he's okay wherever he is. Uh, I'm going to try and fly this as, as, as best I can solo. Uh, there's no one who's there to make, uh, who's going to call me out for all of my uh, all of my getting out of order statements. Um, the Madam Speaker is out of town, so we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, how this show came about, of course, is uh, we m- me of co- me. Let me just speak for myself. I tend to whenever white uh, people, particularly young white people, have statements to make around uh, around. Uh, race and around what's happening in the country and so on. I am I am the least bit tolerant uh, to the things that they say and I get very impatient and I think I'm one of those people who's gotten to a stage that uh, believes that uh, you know what we've tried we've gone on for too long if you don't get it now you're doing it it's on purpose and um, we, we're not going to entertain you anymore so uh, it, it does get to that point where you've tried you've tried explaining you've tried empathizing you've tried everything and it just becomes too much frankly but we thought you know what let's take a step back let's let's have a conversation Conversation. Let us um, let us discuss uh, these things um, in a frank way, and 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 allow the space in perhaps a, a safe space and a non-judgmental way uh, for, for to just to express the the genuine feelings of uh, uh, young white people in South Africa who are asking themselves very genuinely: Look, I want to be a part of moving forward. Um, I want to be a part of the future of this country, uh, but I can't carry this guilt. I can't keep being reminded of what's happened. Who who genuinely feel they weren't there uh, when 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 uh, all of these things were happening? Um, it's a it's it's a it's a group of young people who are just saying, look. I do want to participate constructively, but, uh, you know, let's, let's just figure out what that looks like. Um, and so this show is to, to express all of those views and to look at them genuinely. Uh, in the show today, we've got, uh, Rudy Cook, uh, a young white person who's been going on a very interesting journey, um, of self-discovery, let's put it that way. Um, and, and, and him and I have, have walked quite a journey together. Uh, sometimes fun, sometimes a hard, uh, we've battered heads and and so on where just his experience as a white south african who genuinely wants to make a difference in this country we also have professor jnj kritzinger um who is a, is a is a retired professor of the university of south africa who made a speech at the shopville at the shopville commemoration um t- two days ago on the 21st of march um and made a very interesting uh, a speech which we'll get into in a minute um and he he was speaking about uh, or his speech was titled uh, the involvement of white people in the struggle against racism uh, so we're going to speak to him uh, being an old horse uh, one expects that uh, he can give us some solid insights uh, so we've got a young person in studio we've got professor kritzinger on the phone we 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 hope that he will give us real life experiences because this isn't an academic thing right uh, he lived through it he lived through uh, uh, the, 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 the dark days, the dark and evil days of apartheid. Um, and, and we want to just get a sense from him of, uh, how, how should we be moving on, um, as young people, uh, in South Africa, particularly young white people. So today, I reserve my judgment. I am not going to be bullying anybody. I am just going to be listening and airing some of the things that you would be thinking, um, especially young white people. And, of course, you can participate in this show on WeChat. Uh, send us your messages there at Cliff Central. You can also send us uh, Twitter. Twi- you can also send us tweets. Sorry. You can also send us tweets on Twitter. My handle is at Rory Shabalala, at Rory Shabalala, R-O-R-I-T-S-H-A-B-A-L-A-L-A. Um, you, you can also, of course... Uh, uh no 
<laughs> That's about all you can do. Send us your WeChat messages. Uh, send us the Twitter messages uh, so you can participate in the show. Let's get the show on the road. Um, uh, Professor Kritzinger, are you there? I'm um, yeah, yes. Good morning, Prof. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We know that you're off, uh, you're, you're traveling overseas later on today. So really appreciate the time that you took to join us. Uh, Professor, you delivered uh, a very interesting speech and one that uh, we don't really hear a lot of. You don't hear a lot of white people coming out and uh and, and, and speaking in the way that you were speaking, you, you, you delivered a speech called The Involvement of White People in the Struggle Against Racism. And you, you, you couched it in terms of the farewell to innocence, farewell to ignorance, and farewell to arrogance, and yes to Africa. My goodness. A lot of farewells and one yes. Uh, w- just take us a little bit uh, to to the point where uh, a, a white elderly man gets to this point of realization. What was the speech about briefly, and and at which point did this become start becoming a realization for you? Uh, thank you, Rory, and uh, and everyone who's listening. Um, well, actually, I started realizing these issues when I was about twenty years old. That was during in, in nineteen seventy. Um, I was involved in sort of church mission evangelizing work and uh, in sort of Indian communities in, in Germiston. And then for the first time, my sort of Christianity brought me on the other side of the fence. And I started seeing people living in um, sort of shacks, people living in the Indian community in a, what was then called a slum. And they had to be removed. So my very first experience there was of uh, saying, what the heck is going on? All of this is done in the name of white civilization and Christianity, but, but it's making people suffer. And I started getting, becoming friends with, with people, Indian in that community later, many black friends, and I just started saying, well, this is all wrong. It's fundamentally unjust and unfair. So over the years since then, I mean, I became a church minister and then a lecturer, later professor at UNISA. And uh, black friends and black colleagues just helped me to see what what was wrong and how badly wrong it was. So they drew me in, they pulled me into um, saying, but we've got to change this together. Mm. Professor, let's let let's just uh, bring the young white person into this conversation, um, who also says, "Yes, it was wrong, but um, that happened many years ago. I recognise that it was wrong, so I'm no different to Professor Kritzinger. Um Why is this my problem? Why are we still having this conversation? It's because racism, particularly, is is such that it, it's not just about attitudes. Not just about stop using the K word and being coming, becoming nice and friendly and smiling at everybody. The problem with racism is that it gets embedded in structures, presidential structures. So, Abbasid did the awful thing of saying this is a white area, this is an Indian area, this is a colored area. But of sort of painting the ground, you can say, the earth, in, in, in a racial way, racializing. So now people stay apart. And we, 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 we have this gaps between us, this barriers that we don't meet, accepting certain, certain spaces of work or maybe sport or recreation, but not in a normal neighborly, neighborly way for, for most people. Mm. Except in the middle class, you have suburbs that's getting more and more racially mixed. But so racism is entrenched in, in, in structures of society and in power, power relationships but also an economic privilege and disadvantage. And therefore, we who maybe were not perpetrators, we didn't do this, but we benefited from it, and we're still benefiting from that legacy of privilege. So we are, we are implicated. We have to say it was done in our name for the sake of whiteness, for the sake of, 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 of race. So now we have to help break it down. Mm. If we are... If we say, look, but we're innocent, it doesn't concern us. Sort of what's often called a liberal position. Individualist, you cut yourself off. It's not my problem. I can't be involved. So my view is in an, an invitation to everybody, whatever your age, own up 
that you've been privileged. And now use your privilege, your knowledge, your experience, to flip and change this, to make, to, un, to undo, to the extent that we can ever undo it, the structures and the power relationships that have gone wrong. Mm. So you speak about uh, farewell to innocence uh, in your speech, uh, and you say that the first move we need to make is to say farewell to innocence. One of the basic obstacles to a constructive white engagement with racism is our well-known habit of saying it was actually not that bad, or we meant it well, or it happened before my time, or I was not involved. Such a denial of our involvement or complicity or of benefiting from racism is a false innocence. Let me get Rudy in here. Uh, Rudy Cook, uh, you, you, you're you, a white young person who who grew up in Fentersdorp. Um, uh, so you have a very a very unique experience of, of racism and then the journey towards uh, moving to a point of saying farewell to innocence. Uh, how did that feature in, in your life? Yes, Rory, I think the, the, the challenge is that... Um, you look at at the past and and you can so easily say, but I wasn't complicit in it. Uh, and like uh, Professor Critchen is saying, that it it's very subtle actually. Um, one of the my one of my first realizations was I was in matric. I was going to a, a big corporate for a bursary interview and and ended up with with a uh, with a guy that became a friend of mine, Vincent Mashaba. In the same room, we were sleeping in the same room, and and he had to study maths while we were doing these interviews. And I, I realized the reason why he had to do that, preparing to you know get exemption for university, was because he already had three maths teachers in his matric year, whilst I had uh, a, a maths teacher that took us from from grade eight all the way through to matric, hmm. and. It's so subtle, but you don't really always realize that that is a privilege. But, but guys, uh, the, the both of you, there's, there's somebody at home who's sitting there saying, but that's government's problem to solve. What does that have to do with me, and why do I have to be part of that conversation? Uh, why, why didn't government fix uh, the, the, the structural uh, inequalities and racism that Professor Kritzinger speaks about? Why, why is government not providing that education uh, that, that, that uh, Mashaba needs? So, so these are the genuine concerns of white people is that, yes, farewell to innocence, but surely I'm innocent because this is government's problem to solve. It's not mine, Prof. I think maybe the word innocence, of course, can be misunderstood as if what I'm trying to do is put a guilt, a cyclic guilt trip on everybody. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to do. I think it's, it's more a question of perhaps of shame than of guilt. It's, it's saying, yeah, hey, but this is wrong. This, this was wrong. I've got to do something about it. But you see, we, we have the problem and in apartheid, but even now, of expecting everything from the state. So the state must deliver, the state must deliver, and, and, and that's not what democracy is about. Democracy is that people have power, and that people take responsibility. And the state has a huge responsibility, and is failing in, in a number of ways, particularly regarding education, granted. But, but if we just sit back and point fingers, then we're not democrats, then we're not committed to this country and to, to trying to make it a better place. Particularly us whites who have been privileged with excellent schools and education over the years. I think we now need to stick up to the plate and say, let's, let's see, not again as the guys who know everything, but with, with black colleagues mm. and in partnership, see how we can improve education, how we can undo at least some of the damage. Rudy, you, you, you speak about this experience as being one of your very first experiences of, of, of sort of waking up, but you could have decided to stay in that state of seeing things that you felt were unjust, but just not really doing anything about it and remaining in the state that you're in. What, what happened and what propelled you to that point of, let's say, being awake? And, and, and when did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, where you said farewell to, to, to being innocent or playing innocent and saying, the fact that this guy has to study is not my problem. It is uh, government's problem to a point where you said, hmm, I might actually, uh, you know, the shame that uh, Professor Kritzinger speak, speaks about where you started to say, you know, 
there's something in there that that involves me. I think it's got a lot to do with identity. You know, I want to be. I want to call myself a South African. I want to call myself an African. But that means that I have to deal with the realities of what South Africa looks like and what Africa looks like. And so separating myself from those realities and saying it's somebody else's problem then also excludes me from holding on to the identity that I'm a South African. Mm. And um, I think that's where the journey sort of started and, and, and pushed me because I realized that, okay, but if I, if I truly want to be a South African, I need to accept that um, the guy next to me is also a South African. He's also my brother or my sister, irrespective of their color or their race. Mm. And um, if I'm not going to help them to and, and work with them, then I'm failing my, my myself basically because. But like, what what happened specifically that 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 led you to that realization? You know, you, you just wake up and real and just like I want to be South African. Uh, how? What was happening in your life at the time? I don't think it's something that you just wake up one morning and it's like no, I want to be a South African. I think it's, especially in the white community, we are entrenched that we are South Africans. We we think that way. But I don't think we ever consider what does that really mean. Does it just mean watching rugby and eating biltong uh, and driving four by fours? And is that the reality of being a South African? And is the country and what is happening in the country not much larger than that? Um, so it's definitely something that happens over time. And I think the challenge is to actually open your eyes and see. Um, just a recent experience, I was driving home through one of the beautiful neighborhoods in Joburg and in that neighborhood you've got a lot of street cafes and in the street cafes you've got mostly white people sitting have a, a great dinner while it's raining outside. And next to my car window is a guy selling fruit because that's the only way he can make a living. You can see he's desperately cold but he's doing this because that is his only way to make a living. And actually understanding and seeing what is happening there. You know, it's easy to say, yeah, but this guy, didn't he finish matric or didn't he do this? But what is the realities that put him in that position? And what is the realities that put the white people at those tables enjoying nice dinners? Mm. Uh, Prof, uh, you say we as white South Africans need to say farewell to innocence to stop denying that we designed, carried out or benefited from and in many ways still benefit from this destructive legacy of racism. Uh, how How is that going? You, you obviously speak in a lot of different uh, forums and uh, you engage with uh, a number of different people across uh, across society. Uh, what is the attitude of white people to the statement or are you are you being uh, labeled um, and uh, uh, excuse my French here but uh, back in the day they would have called you uh, a kafir booty we we can say that on cliff central uh, is that is that the attitude or have we moved away from this view that anyone that is that is saying this um, is 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 an apologist is just a, is just a denying their whiteness um, or you know are we still in that in that frame of mind? It's a difficult question. <clears throat> I think there's a whole spectrum <clears throat> of different white responses. One one aspect that I didn't mention <clears throat> probably would be farewell to apathy, because I think a lot of white South Africans just cocoon themselves and say, "Well, look." They are in charge now, They, and so they, they'll just have to fix this now. I'm just sort of pulling out, coming indifferent. <clears throat> and I think <clears throat> that's, <clears throat> that's one response. I haven't had many direct responses to this <clears throat> particular piece. Excuse <clears throat> me. <clears throat> but um, some people, <clears throat> because they feel guilty, just become silent. They don't respond. <clears throat> They're either too uncomfortable to take this on, or they feel sort of addressed in their conscience, but they they feel too awkward. And I think that's what we need to try to do. So my what I'm trying to do here is this is an invitation. It's not to try to make whites feel more guilty or push them more into a corner, <clears throat> but quite the opposite to say, let's come out, let's just make ourselves vulnerable and open, because then 
then we can be talked to, then we can be listened to, then we can contribute. The moment we keep on closing up, either through superiority or through guilt or even through shame or through what, that that we become paralyzed, then we're not helping the situation. I like very much what Judy said about identity. Um, Of course, Afrikaans-speaking and English-speaking white people are also different in, in many ways, but Afrikaners particularly want to feel proud of, of their country, of their anthem, of their sport teams, of their people, our leaders, type of thing. And that's what's gone wrong in a way, that that pride is, is, in, is, is either gone or it's under a lot of pressure. And so this us them, the identity that Rudy's really talking about, I, I share, this us must include all of us. Not the colored have a problem with gangsterism in Eldos or in Esterus or in whatever. We, we have a problem with gangsterism in some of our areas. We have a problem with this and that in that area. <clears throat> that's the identity we need to adopt. <clears throat> Professor Bukwe said there's only one race, <clears throat> that's the human race. Mm. <clears throat> so these other racialized identities that have been foisted on us and that we've internalized, of false identity. We need to overcome them to become truly human. And that's the identity. But I get to come back to your last question. I don't really know how different um, sections of the white community respond. Uh, I have not been saying this publicly. I've been writing this in academic articles for years, but uh, I haven't been much of a public figure. So I'm actually very interested to hear how different people in the white community respond to what I'm saying. Rudy, you're not an academic. You live in the real world, uh, and you, you you've sort of started to to maybe provoke these conversations um, in 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 and amongst white circles. How are your friends and young people uh, responding to the types of things that you're starting to say, and almost uh, calling for an awakening and a realization uh, of 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 the 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 complicity, I guess, uh, whether whether deliberate or not, in the legacy of of racism. I think the starting point is to acknowledge that uh, the re- the awakening is is not is not happening as it should. Mm. Um, my gut feel, and there's no research for this, is that the majority of of white South Africans either have apathy or or ju- just don't feel they've been in any way complicit in our the country's history. Um, I think the one thing that is a glimmer of hope is that I do see groups that are starting to say we we are acknowledging what's happened and we are acknowledging that for this country to become the country that we we have envisaged, we need to partake um, alongside our other brothers and sisters, irrespective of race. Mm. So. Uh, what, practically, how is that happening? Those glimmers of hope. What are you seeing them do? Because uh, all talk and uh, no action uh, is is irrelevant. We say that to the government. Surely we should say it to ourselves. What does that literally look like? Yo, I think that's a tough question because I think the action on the ground is is so minute at the moment. I, I think there's certain individuals that you can go to and you can say, "Look, this guy's." Building businesses with with other people, he's doing this or that. But I think the biggest thing that's happening at the moment is just people acknowledging, starting to acknowledge that, irrespective of your race, we are equals. So I can sit with you in a restaurant. I can spend time with you socializing, and I, I believe that's still a big challenge in this country that um, we we don't see each other as equals. Um, mm. From both sides of the spectrum. Prof, uh, it seems like we're still stuck on just uh, getting past uh, the farewell to innocence. Um, uh, you know, once, we, once we're done with innocence, we're supposed to move on to farewell to ignorance and arrogance and yes to Africa. But we seem to be stuck at this point where we just don't realize it or we don't want to realize that we have a problem. Uh, how do you 
get South Africans, perhaps on a more on a, on a mass scale, to start to recognise that uh, we need to say farewell to to the state of innocence, as you put it, and so we can deal with these things constructively. The things that we keep seeing, um, you, you, we've heard, of course, that the ANC is apparently using uh, racism as its big uh, election card this year because it's got nothing else uh, to run on, but. Uh, whether or not the ANC is doing that, the fact that the stuff that they're saying still resonates and that we can still see examples of racism means that uh, they're, not, they're not wrong right, to say that uh, racism is a problem and they're not wrong to raise it as an issue. It continues to be an issue. But most South Africans will argue and most young white South Africans will argue that it is not an issue and it's not an issue that we should be paying attention to. And in fact, we aggravate the situation by continuing to speak about it. If we just ignored it, it would go away. Uh, how do you get to a point of getting such people to a point of realization and saying, you know what, this is something we need to do something about? Well, yeah, I, I think that's a key question. Um, and that's, I, I suppose, where we need to move to the favor of the ignorance. Because often now, our innocence is based on the fact that we don't really understand the history of this country. I mean, I referred in my little piece to, um, to the fact that many people think racism started in 1948 when the Nationalist Party came to power. So it's, a, it's an apartheid problem. But racism is not only an apartheid problem. That's just the last terrible, terrible phase of it. But it, it's colonialism. It, it started when the Dutch came and started making wars against the indigenous people to, to get a little space there. And when they brought slaves from Indonesia and from other parts of the world. And so slavery established a totally unequal relationship between, and then it was white people and darker people. And that mentality of slavery perpetuated itself through our history. So, and so the way we relate to each other is still affected by what happened 300 years ago. Whether we know it or not, but certain thought patterns are established in people's lives and certain structures in society get established. So, um, so I think to help people understand get rid of the denial or denialism or apathy is to understand the history. How, what, how did white people get into that old Transvaal and what, what happened here in the, what wars took place, etc. And how did private property get into Africa? There wasn't anything like, this is my land. I own this piece of land. It's registered in the deed office. That was completely unknown until about 150 years ago, at least, up here in the north, in what's now called Gauteng. So to understand how land was dispossessed, the Land Act, how people lost their property, they were, they were prosperous black farmers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. They were dispossessed of the land, had stopped paying tax, couldn't pay the tax because they didn't have money, so they had to work for the white economy to get money to pay the tax. So... If you understand that, then you say that, heck, this is, this is a terrible injustice that happened. I, and I'm still benefiting from it. And lots of black people are still suffering as a result. Mm. Really? But I think yeah. to mobilize that, you need not just government. You need not just, not only human rights. This is really about rights. But civil society, sports groups, religious groups, cultural groups, need to work from the bottom up in civil society to make people aware of it. This is too important to leave to politicians, with all due respect. It's got to be a, a people's movement from the ground. Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, communists, you say, and what, this is not what my belief says. Do you think that those civil society organizations, including religious organizations uh, uh, themselves, are transformed and in a position where they can start to lead these conversations? Uh, you know, when you think about the likes of Penny Sparrow um, and, and all the others that, uh, that, that, you know, I even think of, uh, what's his name, uh, the African singer, um, Steve. Uh, Steve Hofmeyer. These people sit in somebody's church <laughs> every Sunday, yeah. uh, especially if they're Afrikaans and the Hui Afrikaners, uh, 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 at the least. So, um, 
they sit in somebody's church and 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 clearly come out of there and nothing nothing's changed. So uh, evidently, this, the the civil society and 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 even the religious organisations. Either aren't being successful or are just not confronting this issue. Or, or do they have the legitimacy to confront this issue themselves? Well, you know, legitimacy uh, or credibility is a, is a serious issue. The, the Afrikaans churches have become badly compromised with, with racism because they justified it theologically for many years. But that has changed, at least at the at the statement level in, in the Dutch Reformed Church and, and, and the other uh, Afrikaner Reformed Churches. But it's to, it's to get from statements into actions and to lifestyle and to new habits. But, I mean, there are, there are very positive signs in a lot of African Christian congregations that people are reaching out to the communities around them. They've got development projects, not just sort of charity, condescending stuff, but getting involved in development projects. It's, it's far too little. But instead of saying, well, the churches have lost their credibility, I think all of us should say, how can we help all the religious communities, Christian churches included, to gain credibility, even if we take baby steps? Mm. And so there was a group of Dutch Reformed Church ministers and young youth members at the Sharpeville commemoration on, uh, on, on Monday. Um, and it's sort of an, an eye-opening thing for them to be to be received and to be, you know, welcomed into this and to start saying, oh, but heck, what actually happened at Chapel? What was it again? Mm. You know, so immersion or exposure, that's what Rudy also said. He met Vincent Mashaba and, and suddenly through that immersion, that exposure, something happened. You start seeing in a new way because you're blind, you've got blind spots. An ideology always gives you blind spots. You don't see certain things because that's normal. And so that normality must be sort of challenged and broken open. That's uh, so, so, Rudy, I, I just want to bring you in on this because it's very easy, you know, there's, a, there's, of course, a young white person who's saying, look, every morning I wake up, I go to work, I do my best, I earn a salary, no one is, no handouts, you know, no one is doing me any favors. I had a student debt like everybody else. I had to put myself through school. Maybe I had to work at a restaurant and so on, put myself through school. No one does me any favors. I do my work, I, you know, and I do it as best as possible so that I can get, you know, do my part in society. So, and you know, I don't say any fluke word. Uh, I don't swear at anybody. I don't say. I don't speak. Uh, I don't speak uh, racist things. Uh, I just get on with my life. Why? Why isn't that good enough? The challenge of that is it, it's still a denial of two things. Firstly, the privilege that you have. Even though you've had to work hard, even though you had to work in a restaurant to pay your university fees, um, you didn't have. 90% of, of white people didn't have to go twice a day to fetch water. Um, you most of the time had electricity to study by. Those simple things were, is a privilege. And the quantifying the value of that is, is I think, hasn't been done, but I, that's part of the problem. And then secondly, I think it's, it's a thing of the heart. Um, if if that's your attitude, do you do you really believe that this country is where you want to be, or is it just about you achieving something? Is it about you achieving, or the country becoming a great country, uh, the country becoming a, a landmark in the world? To say, but regardless of the history, regardless of the past, look at what this country has achieved. And I, I think there's been so many glimmers of hope that actually says, you know, if we look at how the country pulled together around 2010, we, we've seen that this country has the potential, but we're definitely not realizing that potential at the moment. Uh, Prof, uh, we, we, we have this thing, and you're speaking about uh, realizing the history. And actually, let me, let me ask Rudy, because you had an, act, an experience of uh, of coming to an awareness about the history of the country, just give us practically what what that looks like. Because what I've heard from the two of you so far is that uh, perhaps the two or three ways in which one can move um, in out 
out of ignorance is uh, one by understanding the history, two by uh, so- socializing outside of your normal circles, and three just through um, maybe civil society and so on taking up the baton. Uh, your your encounter with uh, realizing that you weren't you fully aware of the history of the country. Take us through that moment and what that meant for you. And I remember it was a really tough period for you. What was going on and, and what was the struggle that you were dealing with? I, I think it's got a lot to do with some of our views, especially of black people in the country, from a from a white person's perspective. Um, we look at the government, we look at people's work ethic and we say, you know, they just need to work harder. Or if they, they had all these resources. And I think the question started with me looking at um, the old Tyslander, where where the people lived, and I said, "Well, why didn't they use the resources that they had there?" And without understanding how how clever the apartheid system was to to extract basically labor forces for for the um, for the white communities, breaking down the social structures, the the family structures in those communities, and so it was a realization that we, we have put a system in place that actually prevented them from using the resources that they could have. And it's something that I didn't understand previously. And it was challenging because I thought the, the, the big thing was that whites had their own land and they built on that. And black people had their own land and they didn't build on that. But... Unless you understand that the playing grounds weren't equal, wasn't fair, you will never understand why things ended up the way they ended. Mm, and, uh, Prof, uh, this comes with a lot of emotion. It comes with a lot of fear. And uh, I think it's uh, maybe part of the ignorance might be that, uh, you know, then once I come to this realization, what becomes expected of me? You know, how do I live with this? And h- how do you, because most of the time having a conversation like this uh, tends to imply that uh, you now have to carry a guilt with you um, mm. for, for, for being part of, uh, let's call it an unforgivable sin in this country. Uh, how do you move past that? And, and how do you overcome that fear to confronting these issues but uh, not finding yourself chained by, by guilt? Yeah, that's a key question. It's a sort of a spiritual question, really, the way you ask it, eh? guilt and fear. How do I deal with my guilt and with my fear? Fear is so deeply ingrained, you know, because whites are a minority, especially in Afrikaners, this this memory of the Blood River, you know, the Battle of Nome, uh, there's this small group of whites and then there's black hordes around you. That imprint, was imprinted in us as, as, as kids at school and through sort of um, you know, this, the, the Gansdag, 16 December, these celebrations, you, you perpetuate this fear that you're surrounded by a black majority who don't like you. But when you actually start talking, or let's say listening, to black people in South Africa, you hear a different story. Even the people who are desperately angry don't, don't usually hate you. They are people who have been driven so far that they actually have, their anger has sort of cold, gone cold and become hate. And I understand that. I, there were Afrikaners who hated the English because of the Anglo-Boer War and everything that happened there, the concentration camps. Hate easily happens when, when your anger gets cold and hard. But the vast majority of South African black people don't hate white people. They just can't understand that we don't get it. That we don't understand what happened and what's gone wrong. But so Prophet, just cutting in there, how hmm. how do I believe this when, um, and again, I'm putting myself in the shoes of a white person, young hmm. white person. How do I believe this when uh, when uh, Julius says, uh, you know, we need to we need to get out of this country. We're not accepted here. Um, how do I accept this? Uh, how do I believe this when uh, it just seems like everything just is blamed on my being white um, and no one acknowledges that I'm working for the stuff that I'm working for? How how do I genuinely believe that these people aren't angry at me and actually don't want to do me harm? They are, they are angry. They are angry, and um, I, I think it's um, it, it's going to happen. 
because of the fact that, that so little has changed in uh, not just in the last 22 years, but so much has gone wrong in the last 350 years. So the, the debate now is about colonialism, it's about roads. It's not about up, the roots must fall or whatever. It, it's ro- so we're going back to the roots of our South African problem. It's the land dispossession of 350 years. So the anger is normal. I am also angry as a white South African at the injustices that have happened. So I think that if we can if we can realize how, how wrong this, all the stuff that has happened from all sides of, of people killed each other on all sides. But if we get angry about injustice, then our guilt, the, the sickly guilt feeling drops away. You see, religiously speaking, guilt is not there to paralyze you. You must admit it, confess it, and get rid of it. Leave it behind you and develop a new way of life. Get rid of the evil that you've realized was there. Mm. And do something constructive. It's about loving, in, we're talking in Christian terms, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's affirming equality. But particularly caring for those who are suffering. There's a sort of a preferential love, a preferential option for the poor and the downtrodden throughout the Hebrew Bible and, and the Christian New Testament and the Quran and, and lots of other religious scriptures. So I think the fear, the fear goes, I mean, let me put it in a very radical way. If you are prepared to die, if you say, I'm ready, my faith makes me to be at peace with God and with the world and with myself. So I'm not afraid of dying. Then you become free. Do not suspect every black person you see as a criminal. Then you then you get free in order to be uh, to act in love and respect. Mm-hmm. So you're not suspecting everybody around you because that fear is an inner is an inner addiction, it's an inner bondage that you have because you you're scared. You're scared of dying in a way. Now, I'm not saying we must take unnecessary risks and be stupid and foolish. We must be very careful that we don't get mugged or hijacked. But we mustn't let that paralyze us and, and, and reinforce our racism or our apathy. So, so, so the spirituality of saying, I'm, I'm not afraid deep down because I know who I am and I know I'm in peace with the universe and peace, peace with God. Now I'm free, set free to become a servant, to become a, an agent of, of love and transformation. Mm. I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah, so, so uh, a, a poet, David White, says you cannot occupy one life unless you have died in another, uh, to your point about I'm ready to die. Um, Rudy, you have taken steps uh, moving from that point of ignorance, and I emphasize the fact that you were raised in Fentersdorp. Uh, if there was ever a capital of racism, that that might be one of them. Um, and for you to come to the point where you're at, it must be a radical shift. Um, what does that practically look like uh, for you in terms of uh, moving forward and, and deciding? Uh, and, and how do you associate with the poor in a way that doesn't perpetuate the power structure, because if if you're going to help the poor, but you're still going to help them as the white person saving the black person, you're actually not changing the situation. Um, so how are you dealing with that uh, on a day-to-day basis, and how are other young white people participate? How do they participate constructively in it? Because not all giving necessarily solves the problem. So what is the type of giving and the type of associating across the color line and so on that actually solves the problem? Yeah, just to quickly revert back to Fenter's door, I think I, w- I remember my dad taking me to the aftermath of the slag of Fenter's Dorp. Um, and you will find it on the internet. So I've seen the, the realness of, of apartheid, uh, firsthand. I think the biggest challenge in how we move forward is that they will have to be sacrificed. And that is the challenge that I personally face, and I think that most white South Africans face, that there has to be sacrifice in order for the country to be successful. And the sacrifice will mostly be in the white communities. For example, how it plays out in reality is, when I'm dealing with a black businessman, 
I must treat him as an equal. I must allow him to make decisions, business decisions. I mustn't see myself as the, the hero coming into the story and saying, oh, I'm here to save the situation. No, that person has got a desire to do, a, to do business. That person has got his own vision for his life and dreams and hopes that he's aspiring to. So what, it, what makes my formula perfect? And the reality is nothing. There's nothing that makes the white formula better than the black formula. And I think that's one of the things that we need to get to grips with is that black people can do this on their own. Mm. So we have a choice of whether we want to work with them and be brothers and sisters and ultimately work to the greater good of this country. If you don't stand on that and willing to make that choice, I, I think the only option you have is to immigrate because then you're never going to find a place of, of belonging in this country. Uh, a friend of mine on Facebook uh, said, uh, we have a good system going here. There's a white guy. Uh, just to show you that I hang around with people who disagree with me. I don't hate you. Uh, he says, we have a good system going here in South Africa. We shouldn't go around effing it up with violence and unnecessary tension. We will never move forward like that. Uh, how do you guys respond uh, to that? That is, a, that is a white person, and, and he feels like everything is fine in South Africa. Yes, let's solve the things. It's mostly government's role, to, to but, but let's give it time. Um, and, and, and we'll eventually get there, but we shouldn't just uh, mess it ab about with, with this unnecessary tension and violence. Prof? Yeah, look, um, I, I think often um, a, a little bit of violence, or a little, not, I mean, I don't mean killing, but a little bit of like the EFF does in Parliament. I don't support everything, obviously, but the fact that they shake things up means people start thinking that, that this. Uh, this veneer, this sort of outward shell of normality is, is cracked open. My, my greatest sadness about what's happened in the last 20, 20 years or so is that the, the tremendous legacy of Nelson Mandela and the ANC of, of non-racialism has, has become tainted and now seen as a superficial sell-out compromise between elite whites and elite blacks. I, I don't buy that, 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 that discourse altogether, but there's an element of truth in it. They only started the process going of an ongoing, far more fundamental transformation of the economy. And that's what we're now busy with. So, so we, we've got to save the, let's say the, the so-called miracle of 1994 by continuing the logic of Mandela and Lutuli and Tambo's commitment to serious radical transformation, we whites have, have were so surprised by Mandela's kindness and forgiveness and, and even having tea with Betty for Wurt of all people, that we, we thought, oh, well, it's okay, we're okay, we, the problems are over. And that was the trap that we've fallen into. So now it's a wake-up call and the, the sort of violent disturbances, all, all, all the protests, service delivery protests all over the country are a stark reminder that not even half of the work has been done. Mm. And so white and black together will have to say we've got a poverty problem, we've got an, a serious inequality, under-education problem, and if we don't, constructively all of us work together on this. It's a time bomb we're sitting on, and it's in nobody's interest. Not even, particularly not in our own interest. I'm not saying this is a selfish thing to do it to yourself, but fighting against racism is not, it, it's a sacrifice. You've got to sacrifice things, I agree with Rudy. But it's also a joyful discovery of your real humanity. It's not losing anything. It's gaining something through these sacrifices. You're gaining in humanity and in identity and in belonging to this beautiful continent beautiful but broken mm. continent in which we live.
Now, as we wrap up, uh, I want to get to you know the meat and potatoes, real stuff. Uh, what does it look like? You speak about making sacrifices. You speak about gaining your humanity. You speak about all of these things. Practically, everyday life, what does that look like for an individual? We understand what it means at a societal level. Everyday, practical level, Rudy, what does that look like? It's simply treating every person that you meet during the day as a fellow human being, somebody that's equal to you. Whether it's but I already do that. I, I greet the cleaners. I get to, when I get to work, I say hi to my black colleagues. I sit down and I do my work. I think it's the way, the way, I think it's the, the battle with how racism is playing out in this country now is we, we, we're doing it as a nice thing. You know, we, we courteous to them. But are you really interested in them? I think that's that's the challenge. Mm. Prof, uh, yeah. practical practical steps towards uh, dealing with this uh, as an individual. Yeah, apart from from greeting, um, I, I think we white South Africans should simply start learning African languages, mm. it, and that's not a, it's a sacrifice in since you've got to concentrate on it. But it's about relating to people um, in their own space. I mean, I remember, you know, Bayes Nudir, who was this saint of the struggle, this Afrikaner um, radical, you could say. He, he had a, a black garden worker, and, and this man kept on calling him boss, and he was desperately embarrassed about it and kept on saying to him, don't, and he said, yeah, boss, I won't. So he didn't, but what we need to do is we need to greet the garden workers, the domestic workers, in Sisutu or in Sisulu, and then you say, Sabona Baba. You call him father because he's your age or he's older than you. And then the, the relationship changes immediately. You're not in this colonial space of the boss and, 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 and the boy. You are now in a space where the, the beauty of African cultural respect and languages start determining how you relate. That's one thing. But we need to get involved in projects. The NGOs are all over the place trying to improve education, trying to do development work. We've got to get, roll up our sleeves and start working. Our problems are not going to go away. We have to constructively engage. Get our churches, if we belong to churches, to start having development projects, getting involved in community activities, job creation, empowering entrepreneurs, as Rudy's talking about, Farm white farmers helping black farmers to get into how do you farm, how do you budget, how do you plant, how do you plow. You know, we've just got to become salt of the earth. We've got to start making ourselves useful. Okay, Rudy. Rudy has a last uh, comment there. Uh, and the reality is, you must use your white privilege for the better of the country. If you're earning a good salary, where are you? In, how are you investing that in the country? In which individual are you investing that money? to make sure that tomorrow will be better than today. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's uh, Professor J.N.J. Kritzinger, um, who delivered a speech called The Involvement of White People in the Struggle Against Racism uh, at the Sharpville Commemoration. Uh, and we've got Rudy Cook in studio as well, uh, giving perspectives on this uh, topic. Uh, question, uh, frankly speaking, how do young white people participate constructively in the future of South Africa? If you want to, to, to read uh, Professor Kritzinger's speech, you can go to the Army at Kathrada Foundation's website at www.kathradafoundation.org and uh, there you will find uh, the speech here. You can also catch it on my Twitter at Rory Shabalala, R-O-R-I-T-S-H-A-B-A-L-A-L-A. This is us uh, wrapping up for Wednesday with one hour show uh, with Rory. Andrew will be back next week with me. Uh, Thank you very much and uh, catch the podcast on the other side of this. Cheers from me and uh, see you next week. This is cliffcentral.com.